Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Time for me to talk about my favorite subject, potential market catastrophes. I really like to sort of think about the potential iterations of what could unfold. Somebody once said to me, you should, you should start something called Catastrophe Corner. But here with me to, to sort of join me in my Catastrophe Corner uh, is Nick Sargent, Chief Economist at Fort Washington Investment Advisor and author of the new book, Global Shocks. One of the things that you take a look at, that you are looking at right now, is whether Donald Trump the next president of the United States, will be a global shock. So will he be? Um, and I think the answer is to be determined. Um, I think his policies have the potential to be transformative as Ronald Reagan's were. So what do I mean by that? Um, big tax cuts, but also you don't have spending under control. So the good news, the market likes tax cuts, deregulation. The bad news is outsized budget deficits. And the biggest difference, though, in the Reagan era was interest rates. He inherited record high rates. Thanks to him and the Fed, they brought down inflation. So um, interest bond yields declined. But after adjusting for inflation, they actually rose in real terms. So the difference today with Trump is he's inheriting record low rates. And so what I see is the potential for significantly higher bond yields and a super strong dollar which will make it harder for him to contain trade. Well, here's here's what I'm wondering. I mean, the market is pricing in a lot of hypotheticals right now. It's been very hard to sort of understand the moves and sort of whether they are long-term or very short-term knee-jerk, as we were talking about, offline. How much control does, does President-elect Trump really have? I mean, can't the market get ahead of him before he does anything? Oh, absolutely. And that's why I say, you know, I think um, right now, um, when I ask the direction of the moves, uh, I, 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 it was a surprise outcome for me. So I had to scrap what I had written before and said, well, wait a minute. Um, if this is the case, what would I expect? The easy call for me was higher bond yields, stronger dollar. I said, stock market, people are going to like tax cuts. So I can see that going up. But what, uh, you know, to your point, what I think they're not thinking is second round effects. Uh, We've had six consecutive quarters of profits declining or flat. So if he can't turn that around overnight, and if suddenly I wake up and I've got significantly higher bond yields, to me, the market then is vulnerable to a correction. And how long do we see, how long does the market give Trump to see, you know, as Lisa pointed out, all of this is rhetoric right now. Yes. We don't know what's going to happen. So how long until we make those judgments yes. or do we just kind of, you know, bet here, bet here, bet here, kind of hedge against everything? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have the answer, but here's what I'm looking for. I, you don't have anything. Right now, everything's clay. It's putty. It can be changed. The f most important decision is going to be who's his Secretary of Treasury, what does his Secretary of the Treasury say? Because on his campaign, which I heard, and I was in New York, he's talking massive tax cuts and spend increases. And I'm sure every advisor, I'm sure Congress is going to say, Mr. President, with all due respect, 
you can't do that. And so then he may scale back. So I, I would say to you, I want to see a plan in place. And you're not going to see that until you've got the new secretary of the treasury to work with him. So in the meantime, I think we're in limbo land. Well, when you talk about a global shock, I want to go back to your yeah. book. Uh, what is the the sort of transmission mechanism here? Because in the last one, it was the financial sector. Yes. What is it going to be this time? They, you know, they all play out differently. Um, most people this time, even before Trump, would say, is the bond market a bubble? You know, we have these record low interest rates. Um, I'm an economist. I say that can't continue forever. So, you know, you were anticipating, could there be some development? Could it be higher inflation, stronger growth, whatever? Um, but I would say, Lisa, if, if that was what I was talking about, then I, I would say, you know what, that's going to be a sell-off. But I, I don't put it in the category of catastrophe, a crisis. So what I'm basically saying is, to me, the, the, the thing I'm most concerned about is the potential for a trade war. That is not priced into the market. Now, again... Wait, wait, it, hold on one second. Yes. It, you said it's not priced into the into the market. What would you have to see for a trade war to be priced into a market? I think, again, what people are waiting to see with Donald Trump, he's a self-described negotiator. So is he going to talk tough with Mexico, with China, and then say, uh, I want to scare them, and I'm going to get better concessions out of them? If that were the case, I'd be okay. But if we get to the point where he takes action whether NAFTA, whether, um, whether um, you know, on the RMB declaring it, um, you know, manipulative currency and I'm going to impose tariffs, that's when the market would react. So it's actions speak louder than words. How would the market react? Oh, the market would sell off. Um, the, the scary, you know, um, here's again what, what I think is interesting. I listened to Donald Trump and um, I understand his, his domestic policies on the, on the international policies. He comes from the school of thinking called mercantilism. If you have a trade deficit, it's bad. If you have a trade surplus, it's good. That's the story. There are winners. There's losers. And so what I'm saying that concerns me is the type of policies that we're pursuing, because we saw it under Reagan, will expand the trade deficit, but will blame the foreigner for it. Nick Sargent, thank you so much for being with us. Nick Sargent, Chief Economist. Right now, I'm looking at a 30-year Treasury yield that is at the highest since December 30th of last year. It has exceeded 3%. Once again, this is the big question, and here we have Lacey Hunt to answer it. Lacey Hunt is chief economist at Hoisington Investment Management Company. Um, is the long bond, is the yield just going to keep rising here? Uh, well, anything can happen over the short run. Um, but my view is that... Um, Rates can go up for any number of a variety of reasons, just as we've seen in a very vicious fashion over the, uh, over the day since the end of the election. But uh, the economy is too fundamentally weak for the rates to stay up. Well, I mean, so here, what, what's the big thinking behind uh, the significant rise in rates? It's basically that people are expecting that a combination of President-elect Trump's trade policies along with his infrastructure spending will spur market increases in consumer prices that will force the Fed to raise rates 
uh, faster than they had expected that people are pricing in. Um, it would also lead to uh, people to demand higher yields just to compensate them to offset the inflation risk. Is that what's going on here? Or is this selling from foreign investors? Uh, I don't. Foreign investors don't hold long bonds. If you look at the Treasury's uh, study of the foreign ownership of the Treasury's uh, um, foreign investors only have 6% of their holdings in 10-year securities or longer. They, they own a lot of short paper, bills and two-year notes, three-year notes. That's where That's 85% really of their holdings are, yeah. So who the long them? bond is a domestic market, has been always. And the, and the, one, the foreign investors that hold uh, the 10-year and older paper are the big uh, European uh, insurance companies who have dollar-based liabilities. And they're, they're not hot players. Um, what we've seen in here is a massive rush to judgment, and there is a presumption. That sounds biblical. That, <laughs> that it's biblical times. Well, yeah, it is biblical time. We're seeing a rush to judgment in the treasury market. What is that judgment? Is it uh, well, we've seen bad? that. We've seen this before when uh, when when President Obama unveiled his one trillion dollar stimulus. That was assumed to be highly inflationary. It was going to lead to a boom. Bond yields would rise. The dollar would collapse. Um, when quantitative easing one was announced, uh, saw the same pattern, quantitative two. Markets presume that they understand the complexities of the macroeconomics. And the fact of the matter is that, um, that, that uh, deficit spending actually carries a negative multiplier. It contracts the economy. It doesn't grow it. This is this is the big debate to me, and I'm so glad that you raised this because you know people say this is going to finally ignite inflation. This is what we've been waiting for. We're waiting. We've been waiting for the fiscal stimulus, and then you have people like yourself who are telling me, yeah, deficit spending actually has the opposite effect. It hampers growth in the it long does. run. So, what's going to have to happen for markets to wake up to that reality, or is that a controversial issue? I mean, it is a controversial issue. Some people would disagree. Well. I, I, it's hard to know when the markets uh, will uh, focus on the long-run fundamentals. That's why I don't try to do it. We at Hoisington Management, uh, we we look on we key our investments on the long-run trend in inflation, and the most critical factor is to to look at what's happening to uh, the rate of growth in money supply and the velocity of money. They're equal partners in in this stance, and. Uh, Money supply growth has been right at its 100-year average, 120-year average. Nothing's happened there. But, but the velocity of money has fallen to a six-quarter low. Uh, it's only 1.44. It's the lowest uh, uh, in modern times, really, except for right after World War II. Now, the velocity of money is influenced by a lot of factors, but the most important of which is the productivity of our debt. And the productivity of our debt is increasingly worse. Uh, In other words, not doing enough with our debt to actually stimulate growth. I can give you a couple of numbers. Uh, from 1950 to 1992, $1.70 $1 of new debt generated $1 of GDP. From, uh, from 1999 to 2000, it took $3.30 of debt to generate $1 of GDP. Uh, last year last four quarters, I should say, we took on $2.2 trillion of debt. Our GDP was only up $450 billion. So it took nearly $5 of new debt to generate $1 of GDP. Now, And why is that? Because, because the debt is basically financing consumption. 
It's financing things that will not generate an income stream to repay principal and interest. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the number that I'm staring at. We've stopped. You've got to let me finish here. So the, the critical point is in this rush to judgment, you've had a massive increase in the long-term rates, not just in the United States but worldwide, and even, even a greater rise in, in the emerging markets. I mean, this rate rise has occurred everywhere. And you've seen in a lot of countries where uh, interest rates that were negative have gone positive. And at the same time, there has been a dramatic surge in the dollar. The dollar is at a 14-year high, unprecedentedly high. Well, the, the surge in long-term rates uh, encourages more saving, less spending. That puts downward pressure on velocity that is already pre- declining precipitously. In addition, the surge in the dollar will serve to uh, bring into the United States a wide range of lower-cost goods. And it will cost domestic firms profits when they convert their foreign earnings back into dollars. It will cost them market share at home and abroad. And so the events of the last several days are are giant uh, constraining action that will put both downward pressure on the rate of growth in money and on the rate of growth in velocity. And so, in essence, what we've seen is there has been a massive market tightening of monetary conditions. Massive. And so, when the tax cut takes effect, if it does take effect in a timely manner, that's something we really don't know, it's quite possible that the markets have already negated its effectiveness. And if you go back and look at the the Reagan tax cuts, um, the conditions were a lot different. A lot, lot different. Uh, first of all, debt, government debt was 50% of GDP, not 107. And we had favorable demographics. We have very unfavorable demographics. Birth rate's the lowest it's been. We have a huge percentage of our households, uh, in the, uh, of, our, of our youngsters in the 25 to 34 age cohort living at home. The demographics are not good. And also, when the Reagan tax cuts took effect, um, monetary policy was working in tandem. Monetary policy has to be supportive, not adversarial. Um, and, and and that's that's the markets have made sure that the beginning is very adversarial. Lacey Hunt, thank you so much for being with us. Lacey Hunt, Chief Economist at Hoisington Investment Management, looking at the long bond. It is down uh, almost 7% so far in November. I'm Lisa Bromwitz here with Shelley Banjo, my co-host Pim Fox on vacation. This is Bloomberg. That's how a renowned economist summed up the state of macroeconomics. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm here with my co-host for the day, Shelley Banjo, Pim Fox. My co-host is on vacation uh, and will be back in about a week. Uh, so, Shelley, this story caught my eye. I thought that it was so interesting because it just highlights some of the, uh, frankly, what people say behind closed doors or in private conversations, which is macroeconomics have got, has gotten it so wrong. And then one of their own came out and said it very publicly. Uh, I want to bring in one of the authors of this story, Craig Torres, uh, economy and Federal Reserve reporter at Bloomberg. What kind of response have you gotten from this story, Craig? 
Well, hi, Lisa. Hi, Shelley. It's funny, but economists love it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? They like to sort of be self-deprecating. at each other. Because it's just like what you said, right? They all knew that the, the house was burning down, and, and but nobody really wanted to say it. So walk us through the sort of what made uh, Paul Rahmer who was heading in as the World Bank's next chief economist when he wrote this paper. Why did he write this paper that essentially tore down macroeconomics? So he said he had a, like a space in a journal that he had to fill. And um, so he's going to write something. And then he saw a movie about Scientology. <laughs> this is the best part. <laughs> and uh, so it started to make him think, well, you know, maybe macro is a bit of a personality quote as well. With all these schools of economists, you know, um, the Robert Lucas School of Rational Expectations and Real Business Cycle Theory versus the Keynesians. And then he started to think, you know, these guys are so busy arguing among themselves and devising these big, intricate mathematical models that they've entered what he calls post-real economics. <laughs> Love that. That's the best description ever. <laughs> Um, you know, I, this story reminds me of back when I went to business school and the people who started rewriting macroeconomics books after 2008, they, they, they were doing full rewrites of textbooks. I mean, what happened to that? What, what didn't this debate kind of unfold in 2008? Why the why the big shock now with this with this, um, you know, rummer scandal? So. What economists didn't really have in those models were things like financial markets. And I think so, uh, you know, I spent a year in business school, too. And actually, this idea of Robert Lucas, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist from University of Chicago, was very powerful. It said, whatever government does, it kind of is ineffective because consumers anticipate it and um, and they adjust and businesses anticipate it. But if you think about ordinary life, um, uh you know, often as rational as we are, uh, we, we make mistakes. And one area where you could see this is um, a, a book I read and I like a lot called Deep Survival, which studies how accidents occur. Let's take a group of climbers in Yosemite. And they say, you know, it's a beautiful day. We're going to go up the wall of El Capitan. And the weather forecast is perfect. But then something changes like, well, they didn't really research the weather enough. Their expectations were flawed or the weather model was flawed, and then they get trapped up there and they're in serious trouble. So you could say, you know, whatever it is, subprime or the kind of odd things that happen in human behavior, those models don't incorporate that at all. They don't plan for them. And you get these explosions that are completely unexpected. Well, and I love the uh, the line that you quoted of his paper. Assume A, assume B, blah, blah, blah. And so we have proven <laughs> that P is true. Um, you know, on one hand, it, it's comical. And as you said, you know, people kind of have all been talking about this, uh, you know, not in private, right, in private conversations. But yeah. this really, macroeconomics have a, has a much broader effect. I mean, if you think about the Federal Reserve or other central banks, I mean, they base a lot of their policies on macroeconomic theory, right? Yeah, that's why I think this is interesting is right now, this year, as a matter of fact, we're seeing none other than Janet Yellen start to talk about the flaws of uh, what economists call representative agent models. So in these models, they have household A and business B, and those households, representative households and business, you know, representative business 
will always respond to a price or an interest rate in this way. And what she said in October at a Boston Fed conference is we need to look underneath the hood and ask ourselves, are various cohorts, are young people responding that way? Are savers responding? How are they responding? I think that's very healthy. You mean to actually think about facts and <laughs> yeah, and maybe exactly. just cross-check it with reality. Um, Craig Torres, thank you so much for speaking with us. Craig Torres, the economy and Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg, coming to us from Washington, D.C. about blah, blah, blah. Friday. We're getting closer, so we need to talk about it. All about it. What should we expect? With us, we have Tom McKee, CEO of the International Council of Shopping Centers. You know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? <laughs> Are we going to be talking uh, on the Monday after, the Saturday after Black Friday, that it was the best ever and that it saved the retail sector? It's always uh, the best ever. <laughs> I uh, I wish I knew everything that was going to happen, but I do think we'll be talking uh, the following Monday and saying it was a very good uh, Black Friday and holiday weekend. Uh, we just recently did a survey. We expect about 150 million Americans to go shopping uh, over the uh, Thanksgiving Day holiday, which is you know which is clearly strong. Uh, you know, Black Friday is kind of uh, instituted in our American psyche. I think is a is a big part of the holiday weekend. Uh, our survey, consumer survey, uh, indicated that holiday sales overall will increase about three point three percent. There's clearly going to be winners and losers. Uh, retail is a fiercely competitive business. Who's going to um, win? Uh, I actually, well, I think that I think the uh, retailers that will win. Uh, are really I'm not going to give you <laughs> names, but I think it's I think omni-channel retailers will win. I think what's happening in retail, and which is often kind of an untold story, and I know Shelley, you cover the industry a lot, is you know we tend to position the industry in bricks and mortars versus online, and I think that's really kind of an antiquated uh, you know comparison. I think what's really happening is technology is being integrated into shopping, just like it's been integrated in every part of American life. And I think those retailers that have an integrated omni-channel experience over the long run will do much better. In fact, you know, our surveys would indicate that the vast majority, 95% of people, will shop at omni-channel retailers. And, and omni-channel, of course, being both digital and yeah, in people, that, you know, retailers that have a presence online and in the physical space. And I think what you're another, I think, untold story is a lot of online-only retailers are moving into the physical space, and so that will create you know additional demand. Uh, even Amazon, you know, is announcing opening up 2,000 grocery stores, et cetera. So, Tom, I, when I think, was um, when was the survey conducted? Was yeah, this pre-election? Uh, no, the the Black Friday survey was was post-election. Was post-election, yeah. and yeah. so did you the guys? The 3.3% see... was three was pre-election. Did you guys see anything that surprised you that came from any kind of election showing up there? No, I mean, I don't think I could attribute any of the findings directly to the election. I think obviously. You know, there's a level of uncertainty that's been removed from the economy and from consumer psyche relative to the conclusion of the election. But as you know, I mean, last month's retail sales were pretty strong, uh, and that happened in the midst of the election season. So I, I think just generally speaking, we're in an environment where, you know, incomes have improved, the job market's improved. Obviously, all of us want the economy to be stronger, but I think we are in a better place today than we were a year ago. Tom, 
what am I going to get for the holidays? I mean, what are, what are people buying? Are they going to well, be buying, uh, you know, clothes? <laughs> are they buying? Yes. Uh, <laughs> they buying new blenders. They buying juicers. I, like, what what are they well, buying? Well, it's, it's the holidays, right? So I think that uh, you know, if you look at historically, and I think our survey results would align with what historically happens. I mean, electronics are always popular. Toys are always popular. I mean, it is the holidays. Apparel is going to be uh, popular because it is always popular. Gift cards are also. You know, a big uh, expenditure during the holiday season because people give gifts and they don't exactly people know. People are to buy. lazy; they don't want to <laughs> actually have to pick anything out for somebody else. They just uh, I, I well, like to think of it as being time. thoughtful. Exactly, save your time. You don't have to go return it. I mean, come on! I don't know. Some people Whenever are picky. I, get, I I understand that, but as the mother of two young children, <laughs> the idea of then well, you're not going to give your kids gift cards. You're going to buy them toys. They would, they would love. They would love that. So has the importance of Black Friday diminished over time? I think the, I think symbolically Black Friday is still really important in the American psyche and as we evaluate the retail industry. I think, however, when you look at the holiday shopping season, it's really become longer. Uh, it's become a much, much longer season. It really starts kind of in November and continues all the way you know, through Christmas Eve. There's a lot of people that still shop, you know, that Super Saturday right up until Christmas Eve. So I don't think it has... Um, the direct impact that it once had uh, on you know retailers' fortunes for that year, but I do think it's symbolically an important um, day in the shopping season and in the holiday season for sure. Do you think that perhaps that Saturday is going to continue to be even more important than Black Friday? Because, Super Saturday. Yeah, because it's the last yeah. time you can get a gift for someone. Yeah. You can't shop online at Amazon. Superb Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do. Exactly. Uh, I think Super Saturday will continue to be important. I think it's part of it's just human nature. People tend, you know, where people are busy and they have lots of pulls on their time. And so it's logical that some folks procrastinate. And uh, and so that lays, plays into Super Saturday. I also think that people, um, you know, it's just part of the holiday season that you remember you need to buy two or three more gifts that you didn't think about. And so I think that is going to continue to be important. What about the experience economy? I mean, we hear so yeah. much about how people are moving away from uh, the traditional shopping experience and forgoing physical things for uh, experiences. Yeah. I mean, are you seeing that in any way? Does that play out at all? Yeah. That you can see I, on, on I, I do. I think it's – well, I think – first of all, I think the holiday season, I mean, if you really you know, kind of take a step back before we started talking about experience, the holiday season was always – really experiential, right? That's when you go shopping and you see the decorations That's and Santa and so That's when you go avoid so your forth. families by waiting in line on <laughs> right. Black Friday. But, but I, do think, uh, I do think the retailers that win will create a differentiated experience for their consumers. That's part of this omni-channel environment. I also think it's part of great customer service. It's also integration of technology into the retail experience, whether it's, you know, being able to use technology to help you fit, you know, the right piece of clothing, whether it's to use technology to make sure you're buying the right sneakers and you kind of test them out on a on a half court, uh, you know, and, and say, are these the right speakers for me? Do I get the right kind of response time? So all of those things, I think, are, are going to continue to be important. And I think you'll see technology and experience uh, be integrated in the shopping experience going forward. But I, I think ultimately, what I think is important is that people don't – there is this, uh, at this time of the year, this sense that, oh, my goodness, e-commerce is taking over. And that's not happening. I think that e-commerce is certainly a big part of the retail landscape. But brick-and-mortar physical retailers are 
the by far the largest part of the retail landscape, and I think you're having an integration of technology and physical. And I think we'll get to a point where we won't talk about online versus physical. We'll talk about an omni-channel retail environment. Talk to us about malls, though. What you know, traffic is you know constantly down month yeah. after month. It's going to be something that's not going to stop. Um, what are malls doing this holiday season to get people in, to convince them to come shopping, spend some time there? You know. You know, uh, I think as it relates to to traffic, obviously there's there. First of all, there's no real good measurement of traffic that's out there. There's nobody that measures traffic and says this is what's really happening. Also, remember sales overall have been going up, and so I, what is really happening, I think, is you have a more efficient shopper. They do uh, a lot of research online. They come into the store prepared to consummate that transaction. Efficient shoppers. We're having, we had a wonderfully efficient conversation. We learned all about what we're going to buy and what we can expect for the holiday season. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.